Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live with Greg. Thanks for your support. So we're here with another episode of Live with Greg. I'm here with Terry Tate. Did I remember your last name? You did. Yeah. All right. And she's an author, a painter? No, my son's a painter. Okay. Author, Uh speaker. Speaker, storyteller, humorist. And cancer survivor. And cancer survivor. And your book is A Crooked Smile. It is. And we happen to have it right here. (laughs) If you, uh, yeah. there it is. With a forward by Anne Lamott. Wow. <coughs> oh. <coughs> Do you want to start over? No. <laughs> the human elements. <laughs> Do you want some water? Um, no, that was a problem. Right. Uh. I had an oil cancer, and so they ended up removing most of my lower jaw and attached. I mean, it's a long, gruesome story, but I had two bouts of it, and um, apparently had a 2% chance of survival because it came back. And um, they attempted, when they removed my my teeth start here, um, they tried to use my hip bone to craft a new jaw, but that didn't work. That failed seven times in 20 hours of surgery. And so they then put in a titanium bar and did what they call a pectoralis flap from tissue from my breast and neck, forming a flap around this bar. And then during radiation, the bar came loose and that had to be removed. And um, therefore my throat and swallowing and all of that is very compromised. So little things like that happen at the least opportune times for a speaker. And oral cancer was not exactly a disease that a speaker wants to get. Trust me, nobody wants to get it. But, you know, my every career I've ever done, therapist, hypnotherapist, speaker, consultant, workshop leader, it's all involved talking, and talking is my favorite hobby. I mean, this is my idea of fun, you know, being on the couch talking with a cup of coffee. Is That's really... So the, the fact that I maybe wouldn't be able to talk again, 
was right up there with dying as the, you know, my list of things I didn't want to have happen. So, but I didn't, miraculously enough. And uh, in March of this year, I celebrated 25 years since the end of my treatment. Since the second one, when it came back. Since the end of, you count, uh, well, you, survival starts in my mind the minute you're diagnosed. The minute you're diagnosed, you're a cancer survivor. But um, they count, you know, how you are surviving after treatment. You know, that's how far out you are. So I walked out of the radiation oncology department at the University of Michigan 25 years ago, March 11th. Yeah. Now, she is very, she'll be nice for a minute, and then she won't. So maybe give her some space. Yeah, give her a lot of space. Let her come to you. Yes, I was talking about your personality disorder, Lucy. Do you want to tell the people all about it? About your rough life here? About the As the queen of the May? Yeah, you can sit over here with me, but you just be nice to Greg. All right? You can smile for the camera because you're very pretty. She is pretty. Isn't she? But she definitely has a predator look about Doesn't her. she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mother hated cats and um, and said that they had turned on you in a heartbeat. So I never really liked them. But I got one for my kids when they were little and they loved them. So both my sons and my granddaughter are all crazy about cats. So she, I, my son found her for me, and they thought that I needed a little company. So Lucy has moved in, but she's on probation at the moment. So, okay. uh huh. House arrest. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Um. This question has occurred to me a few times as I considered us meeting uh -huh. because it seems that a core element for you in uh -huh. your life is joy. Uh-huh. And with everything you just said about the cancer and your love for talking and this going right to the heart of right. our apparatus for right. talking. Right, right. How did you deal with feelings of Victimhood. Um, well, the first thing I would say is that however bad it got, I always told myself, this is not my kids. And so no matter what I went through, it was better than if my kids were going through it. So I was always grateful for that. Uh, and my family, as wacky as they are and were, we all have good senses of humor. Now, I say that as an adult. I don't remember anything being fun or funny in my childhood. It, we were very invested in looking good, but in terms of having a great time, I sort of miss those memories. But... Um, but as adults, we're all funny. And, and I see now that my parents were funny. And so, 
So humor is a big part of it. And I've done workshops on humor and do perform. I have a, a solo show called Shopping is a Spiritual Path. And from my point of view, humor is simply a shift in how we see things. It's, you know, looking at the situation a little bit off-center. And, you know, I remember my, I was with the person who became my third husband when I was going through the cancer, and his first wife had died very suddenly at the age of 43 for still unknown causes. So I remember um, we were driving to one of my surgeries and I was terrified, you know, because before they did the surgeries when you never knew what they were going to take or how you were going to be left afterwards, it was terrifying. Uh, but I, I remember saying to him, you know, if I don't make it through this, you're going to have a hell of a time getting dates. So, you know, the darker the situation, the funnier. Um, I'm a nurse by trade, and I think humor is one of the ways that healthcare professionals deal with being around tragedy all the time. And um, so, so humor, I had a great support system. Um, I recommend making a lot of friends and preferably funny people. And at this age, I recommend making younger friends because your peers are not reliable. So I have a lot of younger friends who, uh, who I hope will be around when I, you know. But, and also to give support to people, you know, to be there for other people when they're having a hard time. And, but the first thing that my editor said when she read my book was, I want you to be clear that you were unusually lucky in the support department because people are going to feel badly about themselves when they're reading about how people showed up for you. So that was part of what got me through. Um, and, and I wanted to be funny even in the darkest situations because I wanted people to come back. And I felt like it was my job to entertain them. And so I tried to keep it light. That got more difficult during the periods when I couldn't talk. But even, you know, and I found that clever repartee is harder when you're writing on an Etch-a-Sketch or, you know, a notepad and the conversation has, you know, gone way down the line while you're still writing that clever comment you had way back when. So that was a little challenging, but, uh, but, and I have a, a strong spiritual connection. Not that I always felt it when I was going through the worst of that. It, it felt like it was, you know, there were many times when I didn't know where that was, but, um, but I still, I sort of had a sense of that. And I think, I remember one day a nurse's aide saying that she'd never seen anybody get so much mail when I was in the hospital. And I had, you know, I had people of every faith praying for me. And I believe that works. 
So, you know, that is a long convoluted answer. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking lately about why I made it. And um, have you ever heard of Paul Selig? He's a channel that I, my son, my younger son, Justin, took me to a workshop with him for his, for my birthday. He surprised me. It was a wonderful day. Uh, and he, who's not a big planner, asked me in October if I was busy on April 7th. So I was like, whoa, this is big. And so we went to this workshop in Berkeley, and this guy is, he's really great. I think he's the real deal. But his guides talk about, you know, the different frequencies between love and fear. And uh, the, the big takeaway from my cancer experience was the discovery of my own guides, which I write about in the book. I think... To me, that's what the book is about, although it's a lot about the cancer story. But for me, it's about the transition from the voice in my head that I refer to as the vile bitch upstairs, who prior to the cancer was so ubiquitous that I thought she was all there was to me. And, but the cancer, being oral cancer, shut me up and slowed me down long enough that I had to be present with her at first in a way that I'd always run from. And, uh, but then gradually got to know other parts of myself and to know that she wasn't all of it. And I, you know, as much as I sort of abhor the, the sort of touchy-feeliness about it, did some inner child work, because I was ready to do anything at that point. And John Bradford was very, is that his name? Yeah, the, the inner child business? I think so. Uh, anyway, um, that was all very big, and so I did some of that work, and... Actually, it was in a storytelling class when I came out here that I discovered this creature that I um, called the girl in the closet. Actually, that's not true. I had an image of her back in Ann Arbor on a walk, I think between the two bouts of cancer, when I got this. And I, I usually my mind works in words, not images. And so I was out for a walk, I think in between the two surgeries, and I got this picture of this emaciated, dehydrated woman child of indeterminate age, huddled in the back of a dark, dusty closet. And what became clear to me was that that was the part of myself that I had ignored and that I, in my interest to please other people and my, you know, codependency, which I believe started in utero, um, was, uh, had ignored. Um, and so, I mean, I really do think that's true. It's, you know, it's, it's a good line, but I also think it's true. I mean, I imagine myself as this little 
compliant fetus trying to, you know, oh, mom, I'm sorry, am I pressing on your bladder? You know, oh, no, I'm obstructing your breathing. Because I never remember a time when making my mother happy was not my primary goal until I got cancer. And then it was like, you know what? Uh, you better, uh, you have other fish to fry here. Yeah. And when I finally did get communication going with that girl in the closet, she said, this is what I had to do to get your attention. I was ready to die and take you with me. So, um, so I believe that she was the one that led me to what I now refer to as my guides. All right. So I was going to ask you earlier if you, if you knew why you chose to have cancer. And now in hearing you, it seems appropriate to me that this girl in the closet like her saying to you, this is what I had to do. I was willing to die and take you with me right. if you weren't going to hear me. Right. So the physicality of that is cancer right to the heart of your passion in life. In right. your career right. and everything. But I want to put an, an anti-Marin caveat in here. I know, you know, I speak to a lot of cancer audiences and I don't believe that I caused it. I think that there are, you know, I believe that we, you know, that we probably manifest things for lessons. Um, and I think there's a, it's much more complex than that. So I don't want people who have cancer thinking, oh, what did I do to deserve this? Or how did I cause it? You know, I people would say, why did you get it? And you know, I would say it's some interaction of factors at every level. You know, I'm sure there are physical toxins, there, you know, the upsweep of cancer and diabetes and obesity and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, you know, certainly have environmental bases. The fact that our food is not anywhere nearly as pure as it used to be, the stress of our lifestyle, you know, there are a zillion complex variables. I mean, there's research that shows that, that people who suffer a major loss are vulnerable to cancer. I had gotten divorced from the husband that it was the hardest well, they were all hard, the divorces, but this got me at a level that one of my sons recently said, I've never seen you like that, you know, before or since. So that was a huge loss. So I'm sure that played a role. My younger son had just gone off to college. And so I think that there was a way in which I could now devote myself to myself, but I probably wouldn't have. I would have just given it to my clients or tried to, you know, control my kids or whatever. But so, so I think it's a complex variable. But the the part of the bigger, you know, what 
Well, I don't think I can ever figure out why it happened. Perseverating about what I might have done to cause it is not going to help me. And so, but looking at it from the standpoint of what can I learn from this is helpful. So I just want to say that because <laughs> I'm not into the, you know, you know, you you made it happen to yourself. Nor am I, have I lived in Marin long enough to say cancer is a gift. You know, it sucks. It's not a gift. And have I lived a life since then that I probably would not have lived without it? Yes, absolutely. And is the life richer? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, I think, <clears throat> to clarify choice in my mind, if I want to climb Mount Everest, I know I'm accepting oxygen deprivation. I know I'm accepting physical torment to the nth degree. Uh-huh. And, and maybe that's what I'm seeing. Not maybe. That's what I'm seeing as choice. Like you, it's not like you said, I want cancer. No. You said, like the girl in the closet, there is a life that I want to live that's richer. Right. And in accepting that, you're accepting oxygen deprivation in order to ascend that height. Right. And but it was certainly not a conscious choice. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Talking about divorce, I'm now in completing the second year of my divorce. Uh huh. Yeah. Wrecking, you know, like yeah, immense wrecking. Uh huh. And we have children. Right. And um. And I could say to you right now, honestly, I would not go back. Mm, that's not completely true. I was going to say I would not go back and change it, but what I would in the path we were on was not the image we both wanted. Uh huh. Uh huh. So that would be the difference if we could co-create. That, right. Right immense yeah 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 totally right and I feel that you know so you know that's I've done that three times which is sort of astonishing um but I you know I don't really I I can't say I regret any of that I mean I don't regret marrying any of them I mean maybe I shouldn't be so eager to marry but I I've always been a sucker for a good wedding (laughs) Okay, great. Especially if you're the star. Uh huh. Absolutely. Well, when I after I, my third divorce, I started performing, and I used to say, you know, now I don't have to get married, because I found a way to get dressed up and be the center of attention without even having a wedding. So that's it. I think it's a preferable choice, really. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's nothing like the grandeur of a wedding. I just heard, um, oh, I just forgot his name. He passed Gary um, Shandling. Shandling yeah. and Sharon Stone. Uh huh. I saw them talking, and she said she got married for the wrong reasons. She thought a person should get married not for what they can give, uh huh, for what they're going to get. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because talk about the Marin, you know. Yeah. That turns the uh-huh. thing on its head. Absolutely. Well, this, yeah. Because I, you know, I'm sort of toying with the idea of 
being out there again, you know, but at 72, disfigured, and, you know, it's not, it's not a big market. So, um, I, I, I much prefer to meet somebody just in real life, where they could get to know me, the, the whole meat market thing, but um, it's a very interesting uh, process, and I have some good stories, but uh, it, you know, I, that's the shift that that I'm wanting to make, too, that, and I really do, I feel like I have a really great life now, and <clears throat> I'm grateful to be relatively fit and energetic, and um, I have, you know, I do a lot of really fun things, and I know how to have a good time, and I think there are a lot of people who whose lives could be enriched by joining together in that and and I don't need to get married again and I'm not even sure I would have to live with somebody but somebody to do things with and travel with and you know talk on the phone even is you know that would be fun yeah so but but I am and for me where I have gotten now um, 25 years out from the cancer, doing all this work, is liking myself and accepting myself more fully for who I am than I did when I was, I can now see that I was really beautiful on the outside back before I had cancer, but I couldn't see it then, and I didn't feel it then. And so I'm more self-accepting. So what I'm really looking for, <coughs> you know, to the degree that you don't accept yourself, you're going to project that onto other people. And the closer those people are to you, the more you're going to project it. So a partner gets all of that. So to the degree that I wasn't self-accepting, I was critical of my partners. And so... I have never been so at peace with myself as I am now, which is not to say it's perfect, which is not to say that the vile bitch upstairs doesn't visit from time to time, but <clears throat> she's not in charge all the time, as she once was. And I've come to trust the guides uh, more than ever before. And the girl in the closet is thriving more than she ever has. So I feel like I have more to offer now on that dimension than I ever have before. So I'm, you know, in this final act, that's really the only thing that I feel like I would, you know, really like to do, is to see what I could do relationship-wise, given the, the internal changes. Yeah. The imagery that comes to my mind is when two people are honestly going to enter into a relationship, they hold hands and they walk into the oven. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is wonderful, right? Yeah, yeah. Because then that 
pressure cooker and heat. Right, right. All the stuff we don't want gets burned away and the diamond uh -huh, uh -huh. Boy, you got to be willing to stand in the Absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing to surface that stuff better than a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had pneumonia this winter, so I was by myself a lot. And, you know, I mean, that is that was one of the gifts of the cancer was that I was forced to be alone. And as much as I had people around me, often I was alone even with people around me. And then there was a point at which I was well enough that I didn't have to have people there all the time, but not really well enough to do anything. And that was when the vile bitch just had a heyday. And so, um, it was to be this winter to be able to be with myself not feeling great and not able to run out and busy myself to escape her i was amazed at how well i did at that and so i know i'm in a place i've never been vis-a-vis -vis peace with myself which is i believe the main criterion for a successful relationship and I also know that you only have to get into a relationship before all the stuff that isn't healed comes to the surface. So, you know, it's, I think it would be important to find somebody who is willing to own their part of that stuff. Yeah. And that's not everybody. And it's not even me every day. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. When the vile bitch is uh -huh. Yeah, and that asshole. You don't need him. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, crazy, crazy. You mentioned earlier that at this point in your life also you're embracing death. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm not ready to die. Right. But it was interesting. I had an advanced directive and all that stuff that you need to do to organize it, but uh, a woman who had, had helped a friend of mine who died about a year ago uh, offered an advanced directive um, workshop. And it dawned on me that it had been a while since I did mine and it might be, mean up, need updating. And friends of mine out here, we decided to get on each other's things as we all had people who were far away and to, so there'd be people right here who knew what we wanted. And uh, so the juxtaposition of having pneumonia and this workshop had me really look at not wanting to die, but, but what do I want when I do? And uh, also friends of mine in British Columbia went to a party that a woman they knew who was dying had because they have medically assisted death up there. And this woman had terminal cancer and was ready and they went to a, friend, a friend's house on the water on a Sunday afternoon and had a big party with food and music and her friends. And um, at one o'clock and then at four o'clock, they had a separate room set up with a chase lounge with flowers and everything. She went up and the people who stayed, who wanted to stay did and the doctors arrived and she said goodbye and that was it. 
And so that got me thinking. And and initially I thought, that sounds really cool. That would be fun. And then I realized that that would never work for me because if I was at a party with all my friends, I'd never want to leave. <laughs> I would be, uh, I'd be like, no, I'm not going. Are you kidding me? That's, what if they talk about me? <laughs> so, uh, so I've redesigned that plan a little bit. If I have a choice, um, and you never know, but, but it's been interesting to talk about it. And, um, when I was going through the cancer, um, one of the people that I write about was a, a spiritual teacher who was this little woman who was in her seventies and looked about 50 and looked like she should have been at SATS having lunch with her friends. And instead she was traveling all over the U.S. and Canada during these workshops really cheap and so we could go and um, I once had a private session with her at a point after my last surgery I think but when I was having symptoms and that happens a lot. I mean you're never over cancer. You're never, once you've had it, it always lurks right here. I mean, not long ago, I was had lunch with a friend, and I was driving home, and I felt a lump in my mouth, and I, you know, my whole life passed for, in front of my eyes, and I was beating up on myself for not enjoying every day more or ever complaining about anything, and then I got home, and it was a lentil, <laughs> but uh, but it never goes away. So this was one of those periods shortly after treatment when I was having symptoms that felt like the recurrence. And the recurrence was hard to diagnose. It took three months. And so it was very advanced by the time they, there was a tumor the size of a golf ball under where my tongue had been. And um, so, Every time I had those symptoms, it was like, this was it. Because one doctor had kindly told me that since I had a recurrence, the odds of another one were exceedingly high. And uh, that I would have to make quality of life decisions. So every time there was something that happened, it was, that was the, um, that was the fear. So I met with Gwen during one of those periods and she talked about how her guides had said that she would expand into death. And I love that paradigm shift because the image, even now with the baby boomers of which I'm one, uh, you know, the numbers growing exponentially of the number of people who are aging out, as it were. Uh, um, and there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, older people being hip. And, but still, the overall image is that you shut down during, on your way to dying. And, and I had a lot of that experience during the pneumonia because, you know, when you're immobile at 72, the mobility, the flexibility, the balance goes really fast. 
And so I was feeling quite decrepit. And um, and now as my energy is coming back, I'm recommitting to that notion that you don't have to shut down and go, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there is a, a part of it that's tending to the inner that, you know, as you get ready to go wherever we go, but that you can, you know, my intention is to live bigger um, and to expand. And I don't see any reason why that can't be the paradigm. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but um, I'm, I'm really hoping to, I'd say I'm maybe 90% back to the energy I had before. And I'm somewhat more agile than I was at my decrepitousness. And um, but um, I'm I really want to be, you know, sort of open to life, even if that doesn't mean, you know. I mean, I don't expect to run marathons, which I've never done. I don't anticipate starting. <laughs> But I can do my aqua aerobics in the pool looking like cocoon. Uh, that's not quite the image that I came up with hearing you talk about it. Those are good people doing very little in the pool. Uh -huh. Well, that's true, yeah. Well, when I first saw the aqua aerobics class, which was probably 15, 20 years ago, I... My first image was that it was a cross between Fantasia and Cocoon, and I couldn't believe that I was remotely old enough to be part of it, but now I'm age-appropriate, and uh, I love it. It's great. So real quickly, Mick Jagger, I think he's 72 or Is it? Yeah, something like that, yeah. yeah. And the Stones are doing a tour right now in Europe, and on social media, a couple of rehearsal videos were posted on his uh -huh. social media and he's dancing around and wow and, wow and i was thinking that's what i yeah, want to do right yeah yeah i saw lily tomlin a couple of years ago and she's like she was like 75 at the time and she was all over that stage and you know a couple of times she forgot where she was and she just you know, set, went back and started over, and there she was. Wow. Yeah. So it was, so yeah, that's uh, sort of, and I don't, you know, I don't plan on having plastic surgery, um, and uh, and certainly I have more issues than aging in terms of appearance, but, uh, but I'm just, I want to live it full out. And I want to appreciate every moment it, it's not even so much that I have to be dancing although I would like to take up dancing again but not as a performer but just for fun but um, but I want to be in the moment and I don't want to waste another minute on worry which is has occupied the lion's share of my mental space really? yeah oh yeah Living yeah, in the past twenty five years and forever. Wow! Since I was, you know, born. Yeah, yeah. So serious. I mean, really, I I don't remember ever not worrying until recently. 
How recent is recent? Um, well, I think that it was the, um, well, I mean, I think alcohol helped for a while. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think I was an alcoholic. My son says I'm an alcoholic light. I certainly controlled it, but I really liked that initial silencing of the vile, vile bitch. That was the, the reason that I did that. Uh, but then I quit drinking after the cancer, in part because it's a risk factor for oral cancer, but more because I felt like, you know, if, if enlightenment is a shift from the frequency of fear to the frequency of love, which I believe it is, anything that affects your frequency is going to get in the way of that. And, and in, the, in my family, whenever we got together, you know, it was fun, but there was always a lot of drinking involved. And I had a brother who committed suicide, who, um, whose name was Greg, by the way. Um, and it, it's not clear how much that was drugs and alcohol and how much was mental illness and how much was life. Uh, but I wanted to show my kids that you could have a good time without chemicals. So, you know, and, and I think that not drinking and doing recovery and the work that I've done since then has been a lot more effective in my relative time out of worry um, than drinking was. Because drinking was a very short-term solution. Not that I wouldn't like it because it was, you know, there were times when it seems like that would be a good idea, but on balance, it doesn't seem worth it. Maybe just like the girl in the closet who had to do something drastic, if we shut the vile bitch down, she's going to start yelling louder. Because this also occurred to me. Do you think there's... Um, the viability came to mind, so let me go with that. may not be the right word, but okay. is there a viability to the vile bitch? Is there something she hmm. is gifting you? That's interesting. Um, you know, initially, I just wanted to shut her up. You know, it was just, oh my God, stop it already. And, and that was certainly why I drank. Um, probably there was, you know, there, I had just a tiny little romance addiction thrown in there as well. And, and those are all diversions. You know, I have a shopping addiction, which I now consider healthy, because I have a, a financial system whereby I, I can, you know, spend what I save. And, you know, I... I, there's some magic that happens around money with me that I'm living here. This is insane. Um, but so I don't see the shopping thing as a problem, although I know people who do. But, uh, but all of those were methods of getting away from her. So initially when the girl emerged and I discovered that the bitch wasn't all there was to me, I just wanted to get rid of her. And I really felt like 
she was, you know, she was sort of my internalization of my mother. And, uh, but what I got over time was that she was really the voice of fear. And that she was, her goal was to protect me. You know, it was sort of like, well, what if this happens? Well, what about that? Well, you better get ready for this. And, oh, no, you offended them. And, oh, what are your kids doing? And what, why is that ambulance going? And, you know, that. But it was all that her motives were good. And so, but the notion, I mean, that's a very interesting thought that there might be a certain sort of energy that she provided. Because now that you mention it, it seems like, and, and I've sort of gotten it subtly, although I haven't put words to it, that, you know, that there's something about her that I need to, you know, incorporate. That at sizing her is probably not an option, as much as we did have done a lot of it sizing. Um, but to look what she brings, and maybe, you know, if in fact it's fear and love are our only choices, I could see that her job was to bring the fear to the surface, make it so uncomfortable and so unattractive that I would look for another way. You know, I mean, of course, miracles got channeled because two people didn't get along and were, you know, fighting all the time and they worked together so they had to get along and one of them said, there has to be a better way. And then, of course, the miracles came through. So, so in a way, the bitch sort of did that for me. Does that make sense? It does. So what comes to my mind is the bitch is a motivator. She is, she motivates you. Right. In a sort of negative way. Right. Yeah. Perhaps, though, there can be an alchemy. Because I do hear you saying you want to remain motivated. You want to right. grow. You right. want to expand. Yeah. Into yeah. That's, that's very interesting. So maybe she, maybe she could be reassigned. Right. That's a very interesting thought, and it's interesting, I work with people who resonated with the book, and, you know, and say, you know, I have a vile bitch too, or a vile bastard, or whatever, let's deal with that. And so it's sort of a paradigm that I use in the coaching, or whatever you might call it, that I do, and it probably um, in some way corresponds with Freud's you know, ego, super ego, and id. Everybody has three. You know, the the inner child, the critical parent, and the other parent, the transactional analysis thing. So that you know, it probably has that. So, so just removing her is you know, it, it it's more now that the task is gently saying, "What are you afraid of?" Yeah. Or, yes. Um, and what is it you're hoping I do? Uh-huh. But, but to give her credit for motivating me, because I have 
always, I remember a, a very dear elderly woman that I was close to. The last time I saw her before I died, I was, before she died, interestingly, <laughs> I was promoting some new workshop or something. And she said, and she had actually financially helped me out during the cancer and had made it possible for me to live in Sausalito when, <clears throat> when I was just recovering. But, and, you know, my kids were out here. I was living in Michigan at the time. And, uh, and that changed my life. You know, I feel like Sausalito saved my life. But um, she said the thing I, I really appreciate about you is that you, you, if you do one thing work-wise and it doesn't work out, you do something else. And like I just created this new workshop two weeks ago that I was working on while I had pneumonia. And um, so, and maybe that is the bitch, you know, that has had me and I've had a very variegated career and love life for that matter. Um, so, so maybe it has been her sort of, because in a way the girl in the closet she has a certain energy that is required to fuel those things, but I think it's more kid energy. And their guides have content, because they're the ones that now make the choices, and I write to them, I do guided writing, and that just came to me as a way to access this wisdom, which is why I wanted to create this workshop about accessing your inner wisdom. Uh, because I think that everything in our world today works against our trusting ourselves and waiting for the knowing to come. You know, I mean, if you're having a conversation with something with someone and a topic comes up where you have a question Nobody says, let me access my inner knowing, or even let's think about it for a minute. Um, people are like, you know, instantly Googling it. So our, um, our, our tolerance for not knowing is just, you know, evaporated. My younger son, Justin, just started doing a podcast called Outspoken. Everybody needs to listen to it. It's on iTunes. Outspoken, I think it's answers to questions you didn't ask. <laughs> uh, and he's, both my kids and my granddaughter are all brilliant. But they really are, I'm not just saying that. Anyway, one of the people that he had on his podcast said that he had a, a wait and wonder policy that when something came up that they didn't that he didn't know if he wouldn't google it for an hour he would wonder for an hour he would wait and wonder for an hour because we've lost wonder and so we certainly when something when a question comes up we certainly don't say oh let me sit with this and see what my guidance has to say. And the process that I do for the inner guidance that just came to me when I was dealing with the huge plethora of healing options available to cancer patients. 
which in 1993 was a fraction of what it is in 2018. Now, buying yogurt is fraught with a thousand different choices. You know, it used to be, I'm going to the store to get butter. Well, now it's, do I want butter or do I want margarine? Or do I want low-fat margarine, high-fat margarine, you know, the vegan, vegan margarine, you know, uh, salted butter, unsalted butter, grass-fed butter, grass-finished butter. You know, it's <laughs> and there's no slowing down and saying, okay, mind, body, spirit, which of these options is best for me? And that's what I learned. That's what the book is about. Because I came to a point in my cancer treatment after I had the two surgery to cut things out and I had the radiation, during the radiation, the bar that they ultimately attached from the end of my jaw to the little bit of jawbone they left over here and then covered with the flap was a titanium bar and that um, came loose during the radiation and the radiation burned a hole in the flap. And so, um, and I, the radiation just about did me in. I mean, the, they, everybody told me that radiation to the oral cavity is the worst kind. And that was why they didn't do it after the first surgery, which had they done, might have, it might not have come back, but Again, that's water over under the bridge, however the water goes. <laughs> uh, and so, so then it became clear that this bar had to come out. And the surgeon who used my first tip for, um, to try and make a jaw, that hip bone ended up in the dumpster at the James Cancer Center. His idea was that he would use the other bar, the other hip to replace this bar. Well, it was like, yeah, because the first one worked so well, let's use the other one. Great idea. And the reason the first one didn't work was because the vessels, radiation, affects the circulation and so there wasn't adequate circulation to that. So if that bar didn't, that bone didn't work because it wasn't, the blood didn't get to it, what were the odds that post-radiation, which inhibits your circulation, the other one was going to work? So that was one idea. Then we found out about an oral surgeon in Miami who was using cadaver jaws to replace uh, jaws. And so we went down there and my father supported that. That was another way in which I was extremely fortunate and most people are not. 
that I, I mean, I was very worried about money because I wasn't working and my husband wasn't working much. But my father paid for us to go to Miami and see the surgeon who was, had written a book on cadaver jaws. And his idea was that he would put in another titanium bar, much better than the one I got near Columbus, of course. And that was always fun to get the ego games of the various surgeons saying why they shouldn't have done what they've already done to your body. He showed me to a class of almost all male medical students um, and showed what the guy had done and said, you never take tissue from the breast in a woman. You always do the flap from the, the back. And it's like, oh, thank you so much for sharing that, uh, since it's already done. Um, and it's a good example of what not to do. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I have a lot of examples of that. Um, so his idea was that, you know, we would put in another bar for a couple of years to quote see what happens and then put in a, a cadaver jaw. You know, what the, that was code for why waste a cadaver jaw on one who might so soon be a cadaver herself. Um, but then, in theory, we, he could then put in a bone in which we could put implants. And for some reason, it was very important to my father that I have teeth. Um, and, I mean, it would have been nice, but that would have been all on my tab because I didn't have dental insurance. And I was only too aware of how fraught uh, any surgery was with the potential for, you know, untoward development. So, so that option wasn't thrilling either. I went to another surgeon who suggested using a leg bone to replace it. And this, unlike the treatment options had been, which had been suggested, where there was a high level of alignment among the experts. And although I was a nurse, so I knew well enough that the healthcare system doesn't always know what it's doing, I felt strongly that although there were a lot of alternative options, I, there was never really any doubt that I was going to go with the, the straight surgical option because I knew myself well enough to know that I wasn't just going to do a diet for this golf ball size tumor, that that was not going to work for me. Take it out and then yes, I'll do every alternative method I can muster, but the fact that it's growing in there is not going to be okay. But this, having just the one mouth, I was not going to be able to please everybody. And so I asked every doctor, I asked every friend what they thought I should do. I went to the woman I mentioned who was expanding into death. I went to the healer that helped me with shamanic journeys. I, you know, I asked everybody, but 
in the end, this was up to me. And I remember being just so exasperated. I had two different surgeries scheduled and they were fast approaching. And um, I went out on our Daphne Ann Arbor one summer night and put my hands up and said, please, God, tell me what to do. And I didn't get any response. And I was hoping for something like the voice that booms down, you know, at Kmart, blue light special, you know, have the operation in Ohio. And nothing like that happened. So I went to bed a little disappointed, but I woke up the next morning with this quiet knowing that if I got back into another patient round, I would never get out. And um, I, it just was clear to me. And then I got this message, actually maybe this happened, yeah, this had happened before. I was, I was on a plane, my parents had invited me to come to Florida a month or so after the radiation. And all this stuff was going on with the bar, but nobody was doing anything about it. And I didn't want to be seen in public, it was too soon to do anything about it. I had to heal and gain some weight. And I didn't want to be seen in public, but I decided, oh, screw it. I'm probably going to die anyway. I'll put on a big hat and, you know, just go. So I was on this plane and I wrote in my journal, please, mother, father, God, guides, goddess, Jesus, Mary, you know, Mohammed, whoever, Buddha, I don't care tell me what to do, because I was in the midst of this surgical dilemma. And I started writing. And it said, go see Elizabeth, the sealer. And um, so I did, and I got this message where I would write a question, and then I put this little symbol on the page. And then what came after that symbol was not from the vile bitch. It was from some other source. And that I now call my guides. So I'd gotten that, I'd started that writing before I went, before I had to really make a decision about the surgery. So that day when I woke up, I wrote down, what do I do? And the guide said, cancel the operations, don't do anything. And meanwhile, all the doctors were united in their assurance that if I didn't do the surgery, my remaining jaw would gravitate to the left because there's nothing keeping it aligned. And I wouldn't be able to talk and I wouldn't be able to eat and I would be further disfigured. So it was a high stakes decision. And so it wasn't, they were saying that I was gonna die. This wasn't a treatment option, but this was a correction of a side effect of treatment that, you know, had very high stakes 
repercussions. So two things occur to me. One, so when you woke up that morning with that quiet knowing, don't get into a gown, Uh huh. that wasn't enough yet where you could make a decision, I'm not getting an operation. Well, it was in that moment, but then... Life keeps you know, and the you know everybody's saying, "What about this? What about that?" And so it took a while to trust it. Okay. And that's what I want to communicate in this trusting your inner guidance workshop, because that was the pivotal. I believe that was the pivotal point in my life. It certainly, I believe, it's a climax in the book. Um, when I went from trying to please everybody in the world to pleasing myself. When I went to trusting everybody in the world about what was best for me, to trusting myself. Are you comfortable talking about just the biology? and Sure. Okay. Because what you described was in my mind picturing a very disfigured face and that's not what I see uh huh uh huh so what was what what was done to prevent what all the doctors were in agreement grace so that really yeah (laughs) and you know as I say as I learned as I listened to Paul Selig channeling and learned the stuff I've always known at from a different angle, and they talk about creating, you know, that we are creative at the level of love, we are creative, and we create our lives, and I believe that that's why I'm not more disfigured, and that, I believe in part that's why I'm alive, and in part, you know, to the degree that I'm willing to take blame for creating the cancer to learn a lesson and I then to that level to whatever level I've reached into love to be creative in my life I was I think that's why my jaw did not gravitate to the left that's why I can still talk and speak and perform and be on a stage and talk to friends and um, and I live to be a grandmother and I live to have these beautiful moments with my sons and granddaughters that I now enjoy and that I own a house in Marin County for God's sake having worked very little how does that happen and people will say to me I live very well and a lot of people who have a lot more money than I do say, how do you do this? Traveling and eating out and, you know, this tiny shopping addiction and, <laughs> and you know, creating this. So to the, I don't feel like I've fully exemplified that or gotten into it because I still live in fear some of the time and project that onto the people I love the most, which I really want to stop doing. And, um, but I believe that I, now that I'm understanding a little bit, that we do have this power to the degree that we live in love and not in fear. 
when I look back on how these things have manifested in my life, I believe that some of that has been at work. And that's why I'm so excited about consciously choosing that. And really the only thing that hasn't manifested yet is this partner. <laughs> and so I, that's what I'm going to work on. All right. And, and creating peace in the world and love in the world. I mean, I dislike Donald Trump as much as <laughs> anyone could. And I'm curious about what might happen in the world if we could all, for a moment, look at Donald Trump in love. You know, I can't say I can do it yet, but I'm working at it. Uh, there is a band, and I'm forgetting their name, they're from the Grass Valley, Nevada City. Uh -huh. And when Bush and, um, I just forgot the vice, uh, Cheney. Cheney. No, Cheney, yeah, yes, yeah. Where, um, and they and Cheney was the big bad guy. Yeah, and yeah. They came out with this song that was so beautiful. That was like, you know, and I, I forget all the words, but it was like Cheney needs love. Like let's love Cheney, and it and it talk about humor. It got into like Gucci, Gucci, Gucci. Oh, you know, and it was so beautiful because and then, it yeah opened up that thought for me, like yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's, it is, it's so clear that our systems of what is okay and what isn't are very skewed. I used to think that George W. Bush was the incarnation of evil. I could not look at him. I turned him off. I thought that, you know, he was just evil incarnate. Now... When I look at George W. Bush, it's like, oh, please come back. And so it is a shift. And, um, and so I believe that we can shift. And I, I think that we're probably, you know, that these are very odd times in, the evo in human evolution. And maybe Trump is a teacher. Well, oh my God, yes. But I, I love stand-up comedy. Uh huh. And Norm Macdonald has this bit yes. about Stalin. He's so brilliant. He's so brilliant. He's so brilliant. My Eric, my older son, and I were just talking about him the other yeah. day. And there's this Ella. I think. Um, you know, talking about the spiritual realm and all this stuff. As soon as I'm judging something, as soon as I'm labeling it, I'm taking a step back. You're out, you know, if if the choices are you're in the pot of love or you're in the pot of fear. And nobody says pots, I just made that up. But but the second you're judging or you're, you know, Oh, that asshole. You know, I mean, seeing Ivanka in Jerusalem, for God's sake, saying the United States on America. And it's like, it's of, you know, I mean, it's so visceral. But then I'm in the pot of fear. Yeah, and that, like, like you're saying, you don't wish cancer on anyone. You don't wish slavery on no. anyone. No. All this. 
However, if we're in fear in these elements, we're creating we're it. Creating it. So when you say, why am I not disfigured? Why can I talk? Why can I eat? I believed, and, and why did I survive? People say that. You know, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking to 350 or 400 cancer survivors at um, the University of Michigan, my alma mater, National Cancer Survivors mm -hmm. Day, which is huge all by itself. You know, it'll be... 25 years since I walked out of their radiation oncology department for the last time, 50 years since I graduated from their nursing school, and 50 years to the day since I gave birth to my first son at that hospital that I'll be talking to these cancer survivors. So I could not be more excited about that. So if you're anywhere near Ann Arbor, anybody. <laughs> uh, um, and, but... I don't want to get up there in front of those people and say, you know, I lived and your loved one didn't because I did something. And, you know, and so there's always the implicit question, why are you here? You know, if you had a 2% chance, I know somebody who had an 80% chance and they're dead. You know, why is that? So I don't take ownership of that. In the same way, I don't take ownership of causing the cancer. Again, though, that question why can come from a place of openness, like real right. inquiry. What can I learn from, from this right. reality? Right, right, right. Or it can be a blame, like why did you? Yeah, right, yeah. What, you know, okay, what were you doing it's wrong? not really asking why. You know, was it your smoking or was it your drinking or, you know, right. like, maybe it was all of those things. Right. Was it all your divorces? You know, yes, and. You know, it's like the improv, yes, and. Yes. Um, and so... To why I'm where I am today, yes, and. Was it the surgery? Was it the radiation? Was it the Czechoslovakian sea captain who I went for healing energy, you know, that I talk about in my show and my book? And it was it food camp? Was it the bovine cartilage? Was it the rice generator? Was it all those crazy ass things that I did? Yes, and it was God. Yes, and it was work on myself. So to the degree that I've done something that has me in the love pot more than in the fear pot, I had a role in it. And it was the guides. And it was finding the girl in the closet. And it was putting a vile bitch, you know, uh, upstairs on, you know, retainer rather than a full-time job and letting her retire after 70 plus years of, you know, being in charge. Hmm. But but I think that there's really something to this, to the choice that we have. And I believe the only choice we have is between love and fear. Those are, that's the only choice. And it shows up in a million different ways. And I've never, you know, I have friends who are rigid about their diet. 
you know, are on the, you know, the, the woman that I do the workshop with, bless her, has had active cancer for 28 years and is very careful in what she eats, knows more about cancer-fighting diets than anybody I know. And she is healthy and thriving and more active than the lion's share of 76-year-olds on the planet. And that works for her. For me, it doesn't work. I love coffee. I love ice cream. And I, you know, this has cut down on the number of things I can do that give me pleasure. So I'm not going to cut out others. I'm trying to eat healthier now. I found out my iron is low. And again, it's that plethora of people telling you different things. One doctor says this. My acupuncture doctor says, don't do that. That'll be horrible. Do this. And if I go online, and that's why I want to help people with the, the finding what's right for you. Because it's overwhelming. Um, and so we just did the first of those workshops a couple of weeks ago. We got a grant for it. And we worked with, you know, part of the people were cancer patients and some weren't. And you don't have to be a cancer patient to be hopelessly confused. And I believe that if I'm totally stressed out at the dairy case, that does me more harm than the difference between low-fat and full-fat yogurt. And so we teach people to muscle test. You know, and for me, if you do this, if I say, you know, should I drink that coffee and do this, that means no. How about that coffee? That means yes. And that's very portable. And, you know, do I need this... uh, grass-fed, grass-finished liver, you know, or, but that's what we're teaching people, so that you know, so that the answer comes from you, and I teach the guided writing, and, um, you know, we were, Jane works as a pendulum, and there are a million different ways to access your inner knowing, but learning to access it, and then learning to trust it, and then what I had to do with this guided writing was trust it more than the opinions of all these people with all those letters after their names and say, I like you, I trust you, I get it that you're a world-renowned surgeon, I get it that you've written a book on cadaver jaws, and this is what works for me right now. Because of the plethora of medical opinion and personalities that were saying X is going to happen and X did not happen, have they continued an invested interest in you of like, okay, my hypothesis was wrong, going back to the why? Why has Terry's jaw not fallen in? 
Well, I don't see those people anymore. Um, the the one the surgeon that did my first attempted free flap, who I took my all my entourage to Columbus, Ohio from Ann Arbor, which if you know anything about college football, Michigan and Ohio State are arch rivals. My father went to Ohio State and I went to Michigan. So the fact that I went to Ohio State for the surgery, I said, you'll do anything to get me to Ohio State, was huge and it was a pain in the ass at, over Christmas to move my entire family and friends to Columbus 200 miles for 16 days. We did that because this guy was the best in the world for the free flap. And so he, but he was also a wonderful guy. So the fact that what he did didn't work, I still loved him more than most of the doctors that I was with. And so he was a fantastic guy. And so, he didn't, you know, I didn't do the other free flap, which is what he wanted to do, but he actually got out of cancer after that and now does plastic surgery and has for the last 24 years. And, you know, so I don't know how much of a role I played in that, but some, I think. So he's not actually doing that anymore. I did, however, I was on a radio show and the guy said, you know, it would be great if you could talk to any of the doctors. And this guy spent a Friday evening, and he's in another time zone, so it was late Friday evening, uh, talking to me on this radio show. And, you know, we I got to say that I forgave him. And he got to say how, you know, the guy from Ohio. Yeah, how badly he felt that we had a, quote, less than optimal result from the surgery, he said. That was about as touchy-feely as a surgeon will get. But the guy in Florida, if I told him, I doubt that he would, that it would make a difference in what he does. I would like him to know not to say it, we should take it from the back on a woman in front of residents anymore, but uh, he had an ego the size of Kansas. So, and the woman, the surgeon who will be introducing me when I do the speech in a couple of weeks, who's a world-renowned otolaryngology surgeon, she did not actually do my surgery, but she supervised my radiation and followed me um, ever since, I think, I think she probably looks at me and says, what happened here? Yeah. And she'll be at that, at that event, so I'm, I should bring this up. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. When's the event? Two, two weeks from tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Um, are you okay with another biological? Sure. Okay. Um, you at the beginning said where my tongue once was. Uh-huh. Does that mean that your tongue, like there's only a portion of your tongue? Yes, yes. The first surgery 
took a portion of my time and to get the tumor and they always have to take the surrounding area and the surrounding lymph nodes were clear so that was great news after the first surgery and I had made, made big promises to God that I would take better care of myself which of course I wasn't doing at that stage um, and, uh, and so it came back but after that first surgery they had taken my time and some of the nodes down my neck but basically people who didn't know I'd had the surgery wouldn't have realized it because I sounded the same and I looked I had a little scar but we threatened my brother-in-law had asked the surgeon if we wanted to get a plastics guy in there to do the finish me off and so he said no I'm a you know so he went way out of his way to do a good job on the cosmetic end of it so that you wouldn't have known it after the first time the second time there was this huge tumor and they had to take my jaw so they took at least half maybe two thirds of my time did you have to retrain you like relearn how to speak yeah essentially and eat eating was harder wow wow the tons that involved with very process. involved in eating and you swallowing. don't realize that your tongue actually takes food and liquids and gets them to the back of your throat um, and so it's um, it really is you know it's I mean I was in a restaurant Thursday night and almost choked to death. It was like, you know, it really, it stuff gets caught back there, and if I can't, lettuce is very arduous because it, it can flatten out over your, you know, your trachea and the, um, going down to your lungs, so you can't breathe. So, yeah, I had to, I started very slowly. I, I mean, initially, they had me eat through a syringe, and so the syringe would go to the back of my throat, and I would just put a few drops of liquid down. Uh, there's a scene where I'm, you know, trying to learn to eat for the first time, and I would get, and they gave me Coke to start with, and the usual hospital health food. My options were Coke. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, no. Initially, it was all liquids, juice, and but the carbonation helps get things down. But a few squirts, and I was choking. And so I thought I was going to have to leave the hospital with an NG tube, but I persevered and got it. But then I, you know, couldn't eat. I, I did just enter and liquids for a long, long time. And then I gradually added foods, but it it's still difficult. Yeah, you said Thursday night. Yeah, yeah. So what yeah. If the people or person you're with did they have to intervene? No, I I've got a way of you know getting it sort of out. Um, I can't remember where I was. It, oh, it was last night at dinner actually when my friends were over. I was eating a salad. And you know, I had to go into the bathroom, and yeah, 
So, you know, I, uh, another challenge for dating, I might add. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't drink, I can't eat, I don't talk well in, you know, noisy places, so it, it's challenging. So this is all I have to be created at this le level of grace, I think. So you've started dating? I Yeah, I've done match, um, I've done it a few, a couple other times, once I did eHarmony, and that, that um, provided a really great story that I've performed a number of times. So I was praying before I said, God, I don't need any more material. I really want a boyfriend, not material. But then the end of the story is looking up at the stars, sitting on my deck with this guy saying to God, if you didn't want me to use this for material, why did you make it so good? <laughs> And so that guy became material. Uh, oh, man. Albeit with his name changed. But it's a great story. Um, and, but now I'm, you know, coming from this different place. And I really don't need material. But, but Anne Lamott is the one who got me on the match. She met her current boyfriend on match and I did it right before I got sick so I haven't had a lot of energy but I've been out with a couple of really nice guys multiple times so and I was ready to just cash it in and I hadn't heard from them and then um, and then I was going someplace with Annie and she said oh I'll take over send me your passwords and so to be on with Anne Lamott sending me, you know, checking out guys and saying, you know, I think so-and-so looks nice. And then I'll send her somebody and she'll, be, she'll write back, run! <laughs> and uh, so, um, so that's been fun. So, uh, but I, you know, I, my intuition is that in the same way that I went through all the steps of for like, I mean, it took me 24 years to get this book, to write and publish this book. I started in Annie's um, writing class at Book Passage in about 1993 or four, and it came out in 2016. So, um, and I think largely because she wrote the foreword, <laughs> which is magnificent. I mean, when I first read it, I it, it was so, complimentary about me and she's my favorite author I think she's a prophet and I love her writing so for her to say this stuff about me my I was not expansive enough in my system that I could take it in so it just didn't make sense to me I was like oh god and I had the publisher waiting sounds true wanted the book and, but they didn't want to send it to the executive committee. I had gotten past the acquisitions director. She loved it, and the head of the editorial department loved it and wanted to, edit, wanted to be my editor. But they were waiting to send it to the, the decision-making body, the Tammy, the CEO and all, until Annie's forward was done. And I knew she was doing on a tour, and... So I said, well, you know, I mean, what I didn't say to them was it's taken 20 plus years to get to this point. A couple more weeks doesn't matter to me. If you want to wait, no problem. 
And so I said, I said, don't worry, and do it when you get back. This is fine. And then she, you know, wrote and said, I, I just started it. I'll be done. I'll, you know, I've been working on it. She dropped everything and wrote it. And so I read it, and it was like, this makes no sense at all. I'm going to have to tell her. She has to read <laughs> She got it. the wrong person. <laughs> so I, before I did that, because I didn't want to, like, be editing Anne Lamont, and so I sent it to a friend of mine, and I said, does this make any sense here? And Amy called me in about 10 minutes and said, that is the best book forward I have ever read. People would kill to have Anne Lamott say that stuff about them. And uh, so then I settled down a little and reread it, and then I knew it was fabulous. But I just didn't have the self-love bandwidth to get it. It was like a very visceral kind of, oh. So, um, so anyway, it's she was the, the first launch event was at Book Passage in the room where I took her class, and she um, introduced me, and it was standing room only. Uh, my kids and granddaughter were there, and my first husband, and my granddaughter's mom, and and every friend, and I thought Annie would be the big draw, because I wanted to get an article in the IJ about it. Turns out the article in the IJ didn't happen until afterwards, and virtually everybody was my friend. And uh, so it was, you know, I said, uh, you know, apart from the birthdays of my two sons and granddaughter, when I die, this is going to be right up there in my list of best days. And I've been envisioning that event for the entire time. And... Often, 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 there were times when I didn't think I'd finish it. I mean, I, it has been edited and edited and turned down. And cancer memoirs don't sell, and funny cancer memoirs don't sell. And are you kidding? Publishing your first book at seventy, and you know, and you can't get books published now. I mean, the publishing industry changed dramatically in the time I was writing it. And so um, to I, so I went through all the channels, and then when it happened, it was magic. So that's why I'm doing match, because I think I'm going to do match and do that stuff, and then I think that the partner will happen magically, the same way the book did. And that's all part of that creating. And um, so we'll see what happens. And I'm, you know, I'm, I, my most recent great love was a woman uh, who I've been with in graduate school, and then we've been friends for 40 years. So I'm not even that particular about the gender of this partner. So, but in match, you have to pick. Yeah. Uh, really? Pick. I don't say both? No. No, on OK Cupid you can do both, wow, but on Match you have to pick one. So, but it's been very fun with Annie in charge. All right, your manager. Yeah, your partner yeah. manager. Yeah, I uh, I had a very unpleasant phone call. The first really unpleasant thing that happened on Wednesday night, and I wrote and 
told her about it. She wrote back immediately, he's a dick. <laughs> You're a hero in bold <laughs> letters. So that made me feel yeah. better. Yeah. I'll be up for a very stupid question. Sure. Okay. Talking about the book and uh-huh. how the industry has changed so oh. dramatically. It just has for all the artists. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, so again, stand-up comedy. I listened to Kevin Hart's uh-huh. autobiography and Tiffany Haddish's uh-huh. autobiography. Right. And it seems like in this day and age, audible books, and especially the author reading Right, them, right, right. So yeah, here's I my stupid question. What do you think of you reading your book for an audio version? I think that would be fabulous. I listen to those all the time, too. I can give you a list of great comedians that I love. I mean, people call me, Catherine calls me a stand-up comedian. I don't see myself that way. The stand-up comedian's role is to make people laugh. And, you know, my my goal is to is to have people, to connect energetically with people in such a way that they'll experience the full range of emotion. For me, what wasn't important is them as stand-ups. It was they were reading their own story. Right, right. And, and so, so that... you reading your own story. And I would love to do that. I don't think that the book has sold well enough that sounds true is going to probably want to pay for that. I, I've never, and it never dawned on me that um, that I could do that myself. Well, and I wonder if you went to the publisher because I'm sure any support given to them, they're going to welcome. That's yeah, I guess. So a Zoom microphone uh-huh. I even have one with me they're professional they're about $200 really think. yeah and there's a friend of mine that does voiceover work uh huh now what he does is he goes into his closet it's uh, big enough where he can walk in and all the clothes uh huh dim oh nice and he has a zoom mic it's a professional level. wow and if you recorded it yourself offering it to the publisher like I'll record it and give it uh-huh. to you guys and you do whatever you do with it see Sounds True was first and foremost an audio company I didn't even know that they did books until my friend who I had just told that my book was done because she this was this is how things happen when they're supposed to I've been trying to get it published for uh, really 15 years of the of the time, and that I've been working on it. Um, and and I've known this woman for most of that time, and you know, so she knew all about the book, but I hadn't seen her again for a couple of years. And the last time I'd spoken at the conference she created called Cancer is a Turning Point which is a great conference, and the last one is in September in Sacramento. So anybody who's ever been touched by cancer, go to healingjourneys.org and come to this free conference. It's going to be amazing. Anyway, I hadn't seen Jan. Jan had never met my kids. She sent me an email after I hadn't seen her in two and a half years and said, was that your son I saw in the Oscars? And I was like, how did she know that? And my older son, Eric, had 
just that plane had been with Patricia Arquette for about a year, and they were, um, and so he was in the audience, and when she won for Boyhood, she said, I want to thank Eric White. I want to thank my favorite painter in the world, Eric White, for the inspiration of living with a genius. And they showed Eric. And, uh, of course, I know that by heart now. But, uh, <laughs> and I was like, how did she know that was my son? She'd never met my kids. They have a different last name. And... Um, so, and Eric is a world-famous painter, and so, uh, who also has a book that's right here, um, and um, so I said, yeah, it was, but how did you know that? And she, I don't still know how she knew it, but I said, and by the way, that book you've been hearing about for decades is done, do you know anything about publishing? She said, no, I don't, but... I don't usually support books for healing journeys, but if you get it published, I'll support it. I said, great, thank you. Three weeks later, a friend invited me to go to a workshop in San Francisco that she'd gotten cops for through her half-sister, who lived in Colorado, which is where Sounds True is based. So I said, no, I didn't feel like going. I was going in to see for a show, so really, you're always up for anything, but I said no. Then I get this email from Jan, my friend who had recognized Eric. She said, um, Terry, meet this Jennifer. Um, she, I was just in a meeting at Sounds True, and they were talking about their book division. She was in a meeting in Colorado with Sounds True trying to get funding for a Healing Journeys conference, because she had done, Healing Journeys had done work with Sounds True and they recorded us audio-wise. She was trying to get money from Tammy Simon, the CEO of Sounds True. Found out that they were now doing books. The editorial woman was in the meeting, God knows why, and she said, we want to add memoir to our list. And Jan said, that's funny. I just heard about a great memoir. She hooks me up with the acquisitions director from Sounds True, and I'm all excited about this because I knew Sounds True to be a fabulous company. And people, a lot of New York agents read this and thought it was a funny cancer memoir. And they said, funny cancer memoirs don't sell. And sounds true, their mission is to find spiritual teachers and take their work to the world. So they saw it as a, as a spiritual message, couched in a funny cancer memoir. So that thrilled me, but that they were even considering it. And Jan, of course, had hired me to speak many times so she could tell them that I was a great speaker. So that was the best way for them to hear about me. I go, my friend, I'm telling my friend who had invited me to the conference about this later in the day, she said, sounds true. That sounds familiar. Oh, sounds true is putting on that conference I invited you to. 
I said, oh, my God, we're going. <laughs> and so she tried to get, she'd already told her sister in Colorado we didn't want the tickets. So she's trying to get a hold of her. Can't. <laughs> Meanwhile, I've now hooked up with the acquisitions director, it sounds true. I'm emailing back with her, setting up a time to talk. My friend Georgia is trying to get us back into this conference. I'm emailing Jan saying, wow, this is so amazing. How did this happen? And, you know, how did you know Eric was, you know, was it the officers? All of this is happening. Turns out Jan is going to the conference in Sacramento from, uh, in San Francisco, from Sacramento. Um, and so finally, I, a Friday night before the conference started, my friend says, I can't get a hold of my sister. We're, you know, I can't get the tickets. I said, we're going anyway. So we get up as a crack of dawn, drive into the city, um, and we go to the ticket thing, and they say, you know, do you have any tickets for Georgia Castor? And this was an expensive conference. It was like 350 bucks. And, you know, so it was unusual that I wouldn't do something free. Uh, but they said, no, we don't have any tickets for you. And then they said, she said, well, you have them in Chandler's sister's name. No. But Georgia had done a little work online and found out that the minister at the church where her sister worked, his name, she said, you have tickets for Reverend so-and-so? And they said, yeah, there you go. So I was texting Jan, who I hadn't seen in years. This was at the North Auditorium, which is a big place. We're texting, and they were assigned seats. We get the tickets, not having known that we would. We arrive, I'm texting Jan, she gives me her seat number, we go in, and I'm sitting right behind her. That's so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about grace. I taught to, I then talked to the acquisitions director at Sounds True. She was born in the hospital in Ann Arbor, where I had the first surgery. When I discovered the girl in the closet, and I said I was out for a walk, I had just crossed Zeb Road in Ann Arbor on my walk. This woman's grandfather was Mr. Zeb. And she, you know, her mother was from Ann Arbor. She lives in, in Boulder, and she was born at the hospital where I had the surgery. And it's been like that ever since. That's so beautiful. That's... So my theory is that there was part of the footwork of being turned down by all those publishers and querying all those agents and writing a query letter and pounding the pavement. You know, I took a finished version of it to a senior editor at Harper San Francisco in 2001. I'd met her at a writing conference and she agreed to read it. And an agent at that conference said they'd read it. That stuff doesn't happen. And um, 
And she had said, you're funnier in person than you are on the page. And that's when I did the solo show, Shopping is a Spiritual Path, as I thought if I can write funny for the stage, that will improve my writing for the book. And I got a grant from the Simonson Foundation to make a DVD of the, of the show so that I can, um, uh, which I'm happy to give you, by the way, if you want to see it. I don't know if you'd want to put clips on the thing. Um, but, um, so we then sent the DVD to agencies that reach underserved cancer patients. But I did that whole performing thing to get funnier on the page. Because I found that the writing and the storytelling, and then I started teaching storytelling, and so the storytelling writing thing back and forth is a very rich way. They feed each other. And so, you know, I'd been, I had done the footwork for getting it published, and now when the time is right, it was all great, and it was all perfect. And uh, the experience of working with Sounds True was magnificent. And the book is beautiful. I love it. Um, my goals were to hold a book in my hands, and I can do that. See, I've done it, and to help somebody. And I have a lot of evidence that it's done that. So I don't even know how many it's sold. Uh, but I don't think it's sold enough that they're going to want to put more money into it for an audio book. But I could be wrong. I could ask them. Do you have the time and energy to do the audio yourself? Without being paid, um, I I don't I don't write this minute, but at the rate my energy showing, I would. So maybe it's yeah, an option it's a possibility. Yeah. But they they haven't remaindered the book, so which is unusual. Um, What's so I, you know, stop publishing. Okay. I just ordered four boxes to be shipped to Ann Arbor. So, so everybody buy the book. Because I would love to write another one, but I know they have to make back what they spent on this one. Right. Um, but my hope is now that in the same way, the footwork that I've done on Match and eHarmony and OK Cupid, that I'll be done with that and then it will just happen in the same serendipitous way that, that the book did. And if it doesn't, I have the best life I've ever had. So it's not like I'm suffering yes. on my own. Uh, and I never, you know, I mean, that was one of the reasons that I kept getting married because I didn't like to be alone. I dreaded it. And now I value it. And if I'm too busy, which I can do, um, I have to, you know, I really look forward to the time I have to be alone. So, is there anything that hasn't been touched upon that you'd like to bring up? Um, so, I guess just, I mean, to reiterate that my son Eric White is a great painter, <laughs> and his book, his latest book, was published by Rizzoli, and so go to his website, Eric White. Um, my brilliant son Justin is a musician and he calls himself Mod Verse. 
So Hiroshi is, I am not a rap person, but his rap music under Modverse is fabulous. And he has a new uh, podcast called Outspoken. Answer to questions you didn't ask on iTunes. And my granddaughter is uh, just the light of my life, a fabulous dancer. She just performed it at Fort Mason, and we are, you know, best friends. That's awesome. How old's your granddaughter? She's 15. Wow. And we're still best friends, which is pretty amazing. That's the best. And we go all over the place. When I turned 70, she made me a card that said, um, something about you are the best grandma grandma and role model a girl could ask for. Thanks for making my life so much better. For this last birthday, she bought me a mug that says, Clamma, two young clamorous, no, two young fabulous and clamma clamorous to ever be called grandma. What is her? Clamma, G-L-A-M-M-A. So other than grandma, it's clamma. Uh-huh. So, so that's great. And, um, and I guess the, the thing that I've learned the most out of all this, that I, if there's one takeaway, it's, Accepting yourself as you are. Mm -hmm. And it's a lifelong job, but I believe that happiness is directly proportionate to self-acceptance. And I think that gratitude is a a great way to get happier, um, as is forgiveness. It's a beautiful world for you.